Hello and welcome to Old Boys Club, a podcast where two young women explain the ins and outs of Australian politics. And there's no such thing as a silly question. My name is Justine Landis-Hanley. I'm a Melbourne-based journalist and I used to work very briefly in politics. My name's Matilda Bosley. I'm also a Melbourne-based journalist and I haven't left my house in weeks. (laughs) Same. (laughs) And today we are so excited to bring you our conversation with none other than Greens Federal Senator... Maureen Faruqi, who is also Australia's first Muslim senator. Now, Maureen didn't follow like the traditional path into politics, like study politics in uni and then get a job in a politician's office and just work her way up through the party like that. Maureen only immigrated to Australia from Pakistan as an adult in 1992, and she worked as a civil engineer and was actually named, I didn't know this, Matilda, on a list of the 100 most influential engineers in Australia. I'm going to admit something to you, Justine. Okay. My sister is an engineer. I don't know what the job of an engineer is. Couldn't tell you. <laughs> Couldn't tell you one bit. I think it's from. It's probably pretty important. I think. I, it's. This is not like a new idea. I just. I saw someone online being like, I don't know what an engineer does, and I'm like, wow. I really. I don't. I have no clue. And we didn't ask Marine. We don't. This. This. This interview isn't going to answer those questions. But just know the whole time that I thought I did. I don't. <laughs> But you know what? Uh, my my um, ignorance aside, uh, Maureen was a very successful engineer. Uh, then after 10 years in that industry, she actually joined the Greens Party. Then in 2013, she became an MP in the New South Wales State Parliament. And from there in 2018, became a Green Senator in the Federal Parliament for all of Australia. Now, Maureen has released a book this year called Too Migrant, Too Muslim, Too Loud, where she talks openly about her experience as a woman of colour in Australian politics. And also, I just want to take a moment to say, full disclosure, I used to work as a media advisor to a federal Green senator. I never worked directly with Maureen, but I did meet her. But if anything, I think because I was conscious of that. We worked even harder to ask her some really challenging questions in this interview. Yeah, absolutely. And we talked to her a lot about dealing with those really tricky internal politics within the Greens Party and the controversies that actually surrounded her becoming a federal senator. Uh, We also chat a lot about really what needs to be done and what people can do to make federal politics a more inclusive place. So here's our chat with Maureen. Enjoy. Maureen, could we start this conversation the way that Matilda and I like to start all our conversations, which is to ask, when did you first become interested in politics? Is there a moment in your life when you were like, ah, that was when I first uh, caught the spark? Growing up in Pakistan, you can't not be interested in politics uh, because literally everyone there you meet talks politics. It's the samosa wala on the street or the person driving the rickshaw you know, all the women in beauty parlors who thread your eyebrows. Everyone talks politics. Uh, and my parents and grandparents' generation, especially having lived through the struggle of, you know, kicking the British colonialists out of India and then uh, going through the partition of the subcontinent, uh, hearing their sto- stories and the politics of that time, uh, the politics of gender, inequality, injustice and corruption was never far from my mind. And they were always heated debates around the dinner table, you know, where parents, aunts and uncles often reminisced as well over the good the good days, they said, of statesmen like politicians. But they also used to say that the system now, when probably I was in my teens, was broken. And uh, they saw politicians as corrupt and in it for themselves. 
So while politics was always front of my mind, becoming a politician wasn't even a consideration, let alone a politician in Australia. But life does has wonderful twists and turns in store for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wanted to ask about the first half of that journey, which is, I guess, coming to Australia to begin with. So you came in 1992. What was it like being a Muslim woman of colour studying and then, I guess, working in such a male-dominated profession? Like, what, what was that experience like? I was quite used to working in a male-dominated profession because I was a civil engineer, which is which is really highly male-dominated at university as well. In our class of about 200 students, there were only four women. Um, and then when I went to work for a big consulting firm in Pakistan, I was the only woman working in their structural um, engineering division. So I was quite used to that in Pakistan. But growing up in a country where there's a Western narrative that is drilled into you, that developed countries are just so much better than where we were, and that they, a place like Australia, there would be um, you know, equality in every sense of the word. So when I got here I, and I started my master's here, I think a couple of days after we arrived in Australia, I was quite shocked to see that the School of Civil and Environmental Engineering only had one woman academic. Um, and th- that things haven't changed too much in the 30 years that I've been here. Uh, but overall, generally, when we came here, I I did feel that Australians had worked quite hard to be egalitarian. But of course, uh, the more I lived here, the more I found out about um, the, you know, the bloody violence uh, of colonialism here and the dispossession of First Nations people and how, um, you know, our country is built. Um, on racism in some ways. And I do believe that over the last 20 years, uh, the discrimination and racism and vilification of people of colour has increased, not least because of politicians in the highest office in our country dog-whistling and openly fanning the flames of racism and some of the right-wing media joining in. So turning to something you said earlier, you said that in Pakistan politics and talking about politics is really part of the culture there. Did you notice a change when you came to Australia? To me, at least, it seems that Australians don't talk as much about politics day to day. Was that your experience when you came here? Or do you think that Australians are actually much more politically engaged than we might suspect? My experience was exactly as you've stated. When I came here, I did not see people here wanting to talk about politics. Um, day to day, not at all like it was in Pakistan. And, you know, I've been racking my brain for a long time to figure out why that is the case. And I think there can be so many reasons. And, you know, we can get into those later. But absolutely, I didn't. And for me as well, for the first many years, it was very hard for us as migrants to get involved in any sort of political engagement or even community engagement. It takes a long time when you move countries to settle in. And for us, it took about 10 years uh, for us trying to make a life in Sydney, finding our feet. Um, and I, th- I think we could do much better in Australia by supporting new migrants, settling in, finding their feet, supporting them much quicker so they can get involved in politics and in the community much quicker. You mentioned that, you know, it it took a little bit of time. Can you tell us about what that process was actually like? Like, how did you get into politics? 
So after 10 years of living in Sydney, which is the city we came straight to from Lahore, uh, because that's the city we kind of knew from my dad, who had also come to Australia in the 1950s on a on a scholarship, on the Columbus Scholarship Program to, uh, to do his master's in engineering, exactly like me at the same university. So he thought Sydney was the most beautiful city in the world. So that's where we landed, stayed for 10 years. Uh, but then we also thought after 10 years of living a very hectic big city life, you know, kind of always scrambling to find balance and time for our two children and for ourselves. We thought there must be more to life than this. And so we made a pretty big decision to pack up our bags again and move to a smaller regional town of Port Macquarie on, on the coast of New South Wales. And there we found a community that we became part of. Um, there we had the time and the space to do other things and not just work every day and, you know, do housework and look after kids. Um, and, you know, we got the time to get involved in community work, in bush care, land care, refugee support. And that's where I met some Greens members. Um, and I joined the party because I saw this really bold political movement that pushed boundaries and whose values align quite closely with mine on issues of social justice, um, not just in Australia, but internationally as well, and environmental protection. And I mean, the environment had been part of my work for such a long time as well. Uh, but even then, the thought of becoming an MP never really crossed my mind. I mean, how could it? Um, you know, I was a migrant, a complete outsider, no connections or networks um, that are prerequisite to a political pathway into parliament. Um, you know, I wasn't a member of this, you know, old boys network. Um, and, you know, I loved my job as a civil and environmental engineer. But if we are talking about a particular moment, like one of those light bulb moments that makes you think, oh, you know, maybe I could do this. Then for me, it was door knocking, uh, you know, in, in the Greens' um, long-held tradition of doing, you know, kind of grassroots campaigning. Every other evening, we'd get together with a few people and start open up people's front gates and knock on their door and have a conversation with them. And I just thought that was an incredible privilege. And it was such an exhilarating moment for me to stand on a doorstep with someone uh, and talk to them about what they wanted Australia to be like or the world to be like. And just the imagining that I could take those views into parliaments and, you know, bring those voices there was the first time when I really thought this could be an interesting uh, way of public service. Uh, and I could bring my life experience as a migrant, as an engineer, having worked in the regional areas and in a metropolitan city all together and, you know, do, do some work to, to better my community and, um, you know, society overall. I do think that's one thing that our, our politicians and journalists have in common, which is annoying people uh, at, at doorstops. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of our job too. I hope I don't do that, <laughs> but maybe I do. <laughs> we don't mind having a chat, I think, is the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Once we, once we realise that we all like having a chat, you either go one or two ways, you become a journalist or a politician. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there were some beautiful moments in that door knocking, some uh, terrible ones as well where doors were shut on me and people said, oh, you know, just looked at me and said, who are you and why are you even involved in politics? 
in Australia, you don't belong here. But they were just lovely moments when people would invite you in for a cup of tea or bring you out uh, a glass of iced water. It was really hot. And once someone actually, you know, dug out a plant and gave it to me because I just said to them, this is this was my dad's favorite plant. Um, so, you know, I think that's the best of politics, really. You um, sort of talking about how you found this community and you had these progressive ideals. I guess one question um, that I'd have is, you know, getting into politics, why did you decide on the Greens rather than potentially, you know, going for a larger party like Labor where you would be able to, I guess, have a bit more of a chance of getting into government and, and really pushing forward those progressive ideals like actually in government? Like why, why did you go the minor party route? I mean, the easy answer, I guess, to that question is I saw this party whose values, you know, align with mine so closely. And for me, politics is not just about parliamentary politics. You know, politics is about creating a change. And that change can actually come from anywhere. It can come from within parliament. But most often, and if you look at history, it comes from movements outside of parliament, working with communities. Amplifying those conversations is what the Greens decided to do. And, you know, some of the key moments, and probably many Greens members will tell you this, some of the key moments that really made you think so positively and excitedly about the Greens were um, the time of the Tampa crisis when, you know, the Greens voice was the only voice saying, you know, you've got to support these refugees, bring them here. Or when our uh, only two senators, I think, in the early 2000s, Kerry Nettle and Bob Brown, heckled George Bush when he came to Australia and was talking about the war on Iraq and peddling the lies. So they heckled George Bush, were kicked out of parliament. And, you know, for me, that was a moment to get really inspired and join the Greens. Jumping forwards to, to when you actually did get into parliament, that made you the first Muslim woman politician in the Australian parliament. What was that actually like? Can you walk us through what that experience was? Like, were you, I mean, at the time, were you sort of thinking about how much of a kind of milestone and a moment that was? What was that pressure like? I actually never, ever thought about a first of, you know, a Muslim woman coming into an Australian parliament. I actually didn't even know that that was the case till the media highlighted that for me. Um, and I was shocked in some ways that in 2013, in such a multicultural country, this was the first time that a Muslim woman had ever gone into parliament. But then once you're in parliament, uh, you look around you and you see the lack of diversity that is in our parliaments across Australia that in no way, shape or form represent the people that live in my street and suburb. It's a completely different world to the world that I live in. Um, and I guess it's not surprising, really, when you look at the pathways through which people come into parliaments. It's the, you know, the well-worn pathway of political staffers or um, people who are in unions or uh, people who know through each other through other kind of privileged networks. Um, it's not a surprise at all that that's the way it is. And from day one in public life, I started experiencing something which I had only experienced off and on during my time in Australia, and that is racism and discrimination and the hate that came through social media, that came through phone calls, um, that came through handwritten letters sometimes as well, and then has just continued and escalated 
um, since I've been in the Senate. An issue that I think that Matilda and I both really care about is reproductive rights and that women's access to legal and safe abortions. Uh, You were the first MP in New South Wales State Parliament to introduce a bill to decriminalise abortion. And abortion, I believe, was finally decriminalised in the state after you had left to go and work in federal parliament, but your work was instrumental in starting that fight. Something that Matilda and I are really curious about is when you were first introducing this bill and this issue was, for lack of a better word, more controversial within state politics, what work did you have to do to convince people across party lines to support uh, this idea that abortion should be decriminalised? Because I think that something that our listeners in particular are really curious about is what work goes into forming those, I guess, alliances, for lack of a better word, and and bringing people across to your perspective. So the abortion law reform campaign in New South Wales was, I think, simultaneously the hardest and also the most rewarding work that I have done. Uh, And it was hard because it wasn't even on the agenda when we started hankering for changing this such an archaic law that criminalized women for having an abortion in the 21st century. And we met, obviously, we met resistance from the usual places that we knew we would get resistance from and attacks from, obviously, the anti-choice lobby. But resistance also came from quarters that I had hoped would be supportive, like some progressives outside the Greens um, and even the labor-aligned pro-choice lobby. So that was quite a shock to me. Um, They were angry at me for planning to put a bill forward because from their perspective, it wasn't the right time. And they thought something would go really wrong under a conservative liberal government and things could get worse. And they clearly told me that if that happened, if I went ahead with this, if that happened, I would be to blame. But the bottom line was that I could not reconcile with the fact that, you know, we had been shackled by this law for 100 years and we were still being told to wait for the right time in the 21st century. It was up to us to make the time right. And luckily, a vast majority of the community thought the same. But obviously, I had, you know, I had been in politics at that time only for a year and This game of politics that so many talk about, I wasn't very familiar with and wasn't quite ready for how that game is played. And I've frankly never seen politics and I hope I never see politics as a game because if it's a game, then we play with the lives of people. Um, So at that point, anyway, with so much community support, overwhelmingly, the community wanted this law to be put into the dustbin. We pushed ahead with the bill. We pushed ahead with the campaign, I traveled across New South Wales and you know, met with communities uh, who were so willing to support us. And there were many doctors and lawyers who were willing to support us as well. But as it panned out, my bill did not pass. We had a debate um, and we lost the debate. But what we found out was that there were politicians in every single party who supported abortion law reform. And every single party had been forced to consider the bill and their position on the bill for the first time ever in the parliamentary history of New South Wales. And we had broken that silence. And although it was very disappointing to me and to many others who had been watching this debate very closely, that, you know, in this day and age, politicians were 
willing to vote against women's rights. We knew that it was only a matter of time, that we had made this change inevitable. And as you said, two years on, abortion in New South Wales was decriminalized. So often campaigns take many, many years. And it took, I think it took six years for this one at this time. But we also know that we um, stood on the shoulders of so many other feminists who had for decades, uh, you know, fought for this change um, in, in the public arena. Something that I am curious about, Maureen, you mentioned factions before and like the troubles with the left and the right factions within the Labour Party. And there's a, some, something that is often misunderstood by a lot of people when they think of political parties is they think of them as these really homogenous bodies where everyone just kind of agrees all the time and there's no internal conflict. But I think that it is important to talk about when that conflict can arise and those tensions there, because not only are you as um, a, a a woman of colour and a woman politician navigating, dealing with people in other parties, you also have to deal with people in your own party who may disagree with your presence. Um, And a point in uh, the Greens history that I am interested in because I was living in Sydney and kind of, you know, going to university with people who were associated with these Greens factions was when you became a senator for the Greens, a federal senator for the Greens. And I remember reading articles at the time and hearing about this kind of conflict that was emerging within the the Greens party about who should be at the top of their Senate ballot, who should be their number one uh, candidate to run for the Greens for the federal Senate. And previously, the number one spot had belonged to a woman called Lee Rhiannon. And you challenged her for pre-selection and you won. And I'm curious about what that process of challenging pre-selection was like, because I can only imagine that it wasn't easy, particularly because I, I think part of the history that at least I'm aware of is that there was this kind of growing, uh, I don't know, they, they, they jokingly called them like the watermelon faction of the Greens, like green on the outside, red on the inside, meaning like very, very left wing and, and, and borderline like communist was what was thrown around. And that was what Lee Rhiannon allegedly belonged to, that kind of watermelon faction, which is an awful term. Um, yes, I'm curious what was that experience like for you having to face that kind of conflict internally when, you know, it's already tough enough to face conflict from other parties? You know, sometimes internal party politics can be the most challenging, uh, but we shouldn't shy away from, I think, talking about it. Like Every party has diversity and diversity is a good thing, you know, in general, if, if we can deal with conflict respectfully. I mean, my first big pre-selection that I ran in was for the New South Wales Parliament. And, you know, it was just wonderful. There was a real atmosphere of camaraderie and friendship amongst the eight women who were running. We traveled across the state to meet, uh, you know, for meet the candidate events with Greens members. And each of us was pitching our own vision of politics and we were questioned about it. Uh, It was all very pleasant, friendly experience with a lot of love around. I was going to say, you talk about it in your book and the way you write about it is so, it sounds so pleasant. (laughs) It was wonderful. And this is kind of what I had expected from the Greens, um, because, you know, we are very strongly attached to this principle of grassroots democracy and the right of any member to put their hand up for pre-selection and go for it. Um, And when I decided to run for the Senate, it was quite a different story. Um, some people were not pleased by my decision. And what followed, I must say, was quite hurtful. Um, there was an effort by some to somehow transform me from very solid left-wing 
uh, MP to a lackey of those in the party viewed as less progressive or less left wing. Um, you know, I was ignored at rallies by people who just, you know, days ago would have hugged me and thanked me for my work. I was even cast by some as a gullible woman who had no agency and who didn't really understand what she was doing. And, you know, from my perspective, I had always considered that I had a right to put my name forward in a grassroots democratic pre-selection, no matter who else was running. But for some people, it was, um, you know, I had to wait for four years and not pause a challenge to a sitting senator. And, you know, I had thought, and Justine, I have thought long and hard before running for the Senate, as you do, of course, um, because, you know, it's not on, it's not just about politics. It's about, you know, your your family, your work. There's so many things to consider. But the resurgence of the far right at that time and the normalization of politics of hatred was really concerning for me. So I did want to take my energy, my activism um, to challenge those who enable racism face to face in the Senate. And I knew the situation was the same there. There was hardly any diversity and it was so easy uh, for people who were touting this um, dog whistling and racism to get away with it because they didn't really have to confront someone who they were throwing their racism at. And I did want historically silent voices to be heard in that office. So, you know, I, it was it was sad that people were not willing to talk to me, to ask me why I had put my hand up. Um, and for me, this was quite an unexpectedly harsh, harsh lesson, I have to say, in cutthroat tribal nature of politics. And I think I realized that challenging power and privilege is never going to be easy. Uh, but I have to say that it was equally such a big lesson in hope as well, because there were so many Greens people and members who who did champion my bid for the Senate. You know, they helped me, they provided me with the emotional support that I really needed at that time. Um, you know, to convince me that I was worthy. Because as you say, for people of color and for women of color and for a migrant woman of color with that triple whammy, um, you know, you're often made to feel as if you don't belong and you're not worth it. Um, and in the end, the majority of Greens members did believe in my ability and agency, and I did win the pre-selection with a big margin. You mentioned before that you were sort of painted as a gullible woman in this process, and that was something that has been quite consistent across all of the female politicians or ex-politicians that we've interviewed, is these sort of narratives that get written around women. Is that something that you only face then, or has that been something quite consistent throughout Parliament? Like, you know, there's been so many conversations around sexism in Parliament. How have you experienced that? This narrative of women not having agency I think is compounded for women of color because this uh, the crossover of sexism and racism is the thing that compounds them. But being a Muslim woman of color, I think it gets even worse. There is a real stereotype of Muslims and Muslim women in society. And it does revolve around people's views of Muslim women having no agency of their own. You know, that they're always um, led by the men in their life, their husband, their brother, their father, and they can't really, they don't have the brains to make up their own minds. And I think that is so rampant in society here. Um, and that has followed me around as well. Um, so, you know, most of the abuse that is piled on me is not about 
what I say or I do because it happens no matter what I say and I do. And it is basically based around my ethnicity and my religion. So from day one of my public life, that has absolutely been the case. Like we kind of boxed into this stereotype and not given the decency of being Muslim women who are very diverse. Um, you know, we, we're not all the same. We're all very diverse because we come from different backgrounds. We come from different cultures. Uh, but that diversity and agency that other women might have is not extended to us. And I think if you don't fit into that view that people have, um, then you know, all hell breaks loose. People just don't know what to do with you. Something that you mentioned, Mary, when you said that sexism, racism and misogyny, they pervade all, all parts of society. I'm curious as to how that plays out within the Greens, because, you know, we have seen um, historically that there have been allegations, you know, within the New South Wales Greens of, of sexism or um, sexual misconduct. And I think that it's it's impossible to argue that like any part of society, even if it is progressive or, uh, you know, stands up for social justice would be immune from those issues. But something that I'm curious about is these issues mean arguably more to progressive circles, people like the Greens, people who care more about these issues. And they also do a lot more political damage for progressive parties because their voters care about these issues. So do you find that these issues when they arise they're dealt with really swiftly and and well or is there that kind of like political fear of uh them coming to light or being public or 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 them being raised in the first place i'm just curious about how all the pressures that progressives might face when dealing with these issues because the political fallout of dealing with them or, or mishandling them is even worse for a progressive. Like if this happens within one nation, it's not as big a deal. Yeah, I mean, you would hope that there would come a day w- when it would be a big deal for any political party or any space in society, any workplace, but we're not there yet. Um, you know, I wouldn't never be in any other party than than the Greens uh, because we we are held to high standards because we, we try and adhere to those high standards. And you're absolutely right. The fallout, the critique, um, the attacks on us uh, would be much greater if, you know, issues like sexism or racism are exposed within our party. But that doesn't mean that, that issues like that when they come up, because we are also part of society. And, you know, we're not perfect either, that they shouldn't be dealt with with the utmost care and integrity. And I think that's what we we hope to achieve in the Greens. Uh, but obviously, you know, like any other part of society, um, they, from time to time, these issues will arise and it matters how they are dealt with and how we make sure that if these issues arise, um, they are dealt with with, with justice and centering of the people who are facing those issues and that you know it that improves us as a political movement as a, as and as a political party i guess as a follow up to that question has your experience as a woman and in particular a woman of color have you seen and felt that evolve from when you first joined the greens back in what is it now 2002 to 
almost 20 years later, has there been an evolution even within the Greens? And how have you, if that has happened, how have you agitated for that evolution? I Like I said, I joined the Greens in Port Macquarie, which is like a very, very monocultural <laughs> place in itself, like hugely white. Uh, and so the party there was the same. And it was, my experience there was absolutely wonderful. Uh, it, they were so, like, we were so flexible. I had young kids and, you know, we met in parks and um, just made it very easy for everyone. And then coming back to Sydney, uh, much more multicultural. It was a surprise that our party, and I'm talking about 15, 16 years ago now, was very white. And I don't think we still have um, the we still have the multiculturalism that is in our communities. It's changing. I think it's changed a lot. Um, you know, now we have uh, the first First Nations woman, uh, Lydia Thorpe, in the Senate. There's me in the Senate. Um, so, you know, I think changes are being made. We've got Jenny Leong now in New South Wales' Parliament, also the member for Newtown. Um, so things have definitely changed, but we have a long way to go. Really, we do in terms of not just changing the party, but also engaging much more uh, with multicultural communities. Uh, we have wonderful policies, um, you know, wonderful positions on how we want to advocate. And we do advocate for multicultural communities, for minorities, for the marginalized. But I think to do it to its full effect. We have to become that party which is and looks representative of the communities that we advocate for. Every time we put out a call out for political questions, we get at least two or three people writing in and saying, hey, the Liberals and the Nationals have a coalition. What about the Labor and the Greens? And Justine and I think that we know the answer to this, but just throwing it over to you. You ready to team up Coalition 2.0 for 2022? How are you feeling? Absolutely ready to do it. I mean, I think, like, obviously we've got to kick the Libs out. And, you know, if the Greens can share power with the Labor Party come next election, I think we can really make some of the changes that we desperately need to make. Changes around dealing with the climate crisis, for one, which is impacting every single thing that we do. You know, it is so inextricably linked with the inequalities that we face in Australia and across the world. Um, you know, we can talk about free higher education again. You know, we can talk about building a country that is a feminist and an anti-racist country. I think it is really important for Labour and Greens to work together. But for that to happen, both the parties have to extend their hand of, of friendship and, you know, working together on issues that matter to our communities. So we'll be waiting for Albo to shoot you an email and say, let's, let's team up, let's go. Ready, ready to get that email. I think we've made it quite clear. Um, that we we want to go in that direction to kick the libs out um, and labor in the greens back in a position where we can actually make the changes um, that our communities have been demanding. There is so much to do and labor alone is not going to do it. I just want to sneak in and ask Marianne, we have so many people write into us and ask, what do politicians actually like do in their day-to-day -day life? Um, because I think that at, with the federal government, there's a perception that, you know, they 
uh, yell at each other in Parliament. Well, Labour and, and the Libs yell at each other in Parliament, and then um, the Liberal government uh, go out and talk to the media a lot. But there's less of an understanding of what politicians do in their, I suppose, downtime outside of parliamentary sitting weeks, and also less of an understanding of what minority parties or independents do on a day-to-day basis. Would you be able to tell our listeners what what does your life look like when you're not in a sitting week in Canberra? Because most of the year, I think like two thirds of the year, you're not sitting in parliament. So what do you do? Well, my work really starts when I'm not in parliament, although parliamentary work is really hectic and time consuming. um, You know, there's so much more to be done outside of parliament and obviously very different now in COVID. uh, But the day-to-day work would be basically, you know, meeting with communities joining their campaigns, going to rallies, which is not what liberal or labor politicians often do, um, supporting individuals, responding to phone calls, emails. I have a huge workload of portfolios, for instance. So, you know, I have education, which is from early childhood education to schools, to universities, to TAFE. Um, I have anti-racism as a portfolio. I have housing as a portfolio. I have animal welfare as a portfolio and also uh, international aid. So within all those portfolios, you work with communities, with stakeholders every single day um, to develop your positions, your policies, to bring them on board or to work with them, um, students across the board. So so that's where um, our work comes into play. But mainly it is about building community campaigns, listening to community members. Um, you know, going to events to not just speak, but actually to find out what communities are facing. So it is all about community work, on the groundwork, to be really frank. Um, Because, you know, for me, what makes a difference and what can change things could be a phone call. It could be a conversation on the doorstep of someone you're talking to. It can be a mass rally. And you have to be involved in all those things to be part of that change, to support that change, and to lead that change. Just finally, so in your book and publicly, you've talked about how we need greater diversity in parliament, particularly we need more women, we need more women of colour, we need more people of colour and migrants. What is your vision? So how do we get there? And if, hopefully when we get there, what Uh, What are we going to be able to accomplish? When I sit in that parliament, Justine, and I hear people around me talking about issues, whether it's issues on housing or education, you know, you see the sameness of views that comes through and you look around you and you understand why. Because that parliament is, you know, and I know that it's said so many times, but it is very pale, male stale and same. Uh, you know, a lot of, there's no diversity in backgrounds in a number of ways. Like, you know, I've said before, people come from the, um, you know, same kind of networks, same pathways. And that is problematic, of course, for equality, because you know, it's not represented there. But it is also problematic of how decisions are made, because we're not hearing the views and voices of a vast majority of people in the community. And without hearing those views and voices, we cannot make decisions for everyone who lives in our community. And we have seen, even during COVID, 
we have seen the people who were left behind were people who don't have representation in our parliaments. So for me, that is of utmost importance. Um, but I also know that so many young women of color have come and, you know, kind of told me that when they see me, they see at least someone representing them. You know, migrants tell me that they, when they hear my story, they hear their stories. But on the other hand, they also say that they're very apprehensive of going down the same path that I have gone down because of, you know, the hate, abuse and vilification that I receive on a daily basis. But my response to that is, you know, you have to take that risk. And unfortunately, no one is going to roll out a red carpet for us and say, come join the political debate. And we have to do it ourselves. And we are absolutely capable of doing it ourselves. Thank you so much, Maureen. We really, we really appreciate chatting with you. Thank you so much. It was absolutely wonderful to chat with you. Thanks so much for being on. Now, before we go, we'd like to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the land of the Burrawong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past and present. This land was stolen and never ceded. And we also want to acknowledge the country that you are joining us from and pay our respects to any other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are listening today. Now, the theme music for our podcast is by the amazing Alexis Weaver. Our show is produced, mixed and edited by Anthony Furchie and Alex Ty. I'm Matilda Bosley. I'm Justine Landis-Hanley. And this and this is, is Old Boys, Boys Club. Club. <laughs> God, that delay gets us every time. <laughs> yeah.